0: You see on the service sheet, that outline of the sermon, starting with a phrase, this is the dark before the dawn. This is the dark before the dawn. Friends, you'll have noticed we live in a time and place that has an expiry date. Our world is like milk on the shelf, like it tastes good at the moment, but you know it's going to go sour one day. We live in a time and place where even us gathering here this morning for gathered worship which is by the way what is gathered worship it's many things but at least to the world it is a glorious statement of we stand up and say something. You know we we want to stand up and say something. You know he can stand up and say something to the world come to church. Because that says to the world, that says, let's have fun and do all sorts of other things on the Lord's Day, on the Sunday. Let's work on the Lord's Day that God's given us for rest to stand up and say, no, I'm going to be a rebel, is to go to church. It's a glorious statement of God in our lives. But we live in a time and place where simply going to church, gathering like this, is not just seen as weird anymore like it was back in the 90s when I was a young Christian going to church, now it's seen as wrong. We live in a time and place where the oldest sins of our world, the oldest sins of idolatry have taken on new forms. The gods of today are different than the gods of 20 years ago. The god of sexuality today, with all the pantheon of forms of that god, cannot be questioned and demands our worship so much now that we must bow the knee or else. Uh, We live in a time and place that could be said this is the dark before the dawn. Um, I get that phrase from one of my favourite songs. I'm not sure if it's a congregational song, but look, if if you're the music director around here and you know me, I'd like to try it. But It's by Andrew Peterson and he sings this. This is the storm, this is the storm, the storm before the calm. This is the pain, the pain before the balm. This is the cold, the cold, it's the cold before the warm. These are the tears, the tears before the song. This is the dark. Sometimes all I see is this darkness. Can you feel the darkness? This is the dark before the dawn. Living in the dark before the dawn in this world of sin brings us who love Jesus a strong sense of sorrow. We've been listening to Jesus in John's Gospel on the night he was betrayed. Five chapters, one night, one conversation. And today we've come to hear Jesus' last earthly words, particularly addressed to his disciples, before next week he prays that high priestly prayer, what's known as. These are the last words, he directly looks them in the eye before he goes to the cross, Dies and rises again, and as he says these last words of this night, before he's taken away at the hands of sinful men, he speaks about his own rejection and crucifixion, and he says to his disciples, You will have sorrow. Now, again, we see Jesus' disciples, kind of like us, kind of like me, are often confused. What's he talking about? What is Jesus talking about here? As we see in verse 18, chapter 16, verse 18, they're saying, "What does He mean by a little while? We do not know what He's talking about, and so Jesus is caring for them through their current confusion, prepares them for future sorrow. He's saying, "You're going to have sorrow, because I'm going to go away." Now, I want you to see this. Yes, he's going to be crucified. But Jesus is not just saying, "Oh don't worry. I'm going to die on a cross on the weekend. It's going to be a long weekend, I tell you. Happy long weekend to you. It's going to be a long weekend. It's going to be a hard weekend. Hardest weekend you've ever had. You wake up at work Monday morning. How was your weekend? Oh, it was long and hard. But Jesus rose again. It's okay. He's not just saying, yeah, I'm going to die on the cross, but I'll see you next week. He's speaking, preparing his disciples, us, Not just for sorrow for the weekend, but sorrow until he finally returns. He's preparing us for the darkness before the dawn. Friends, do you feel the darkness? I do. Many of us serve in workplaces that pummel us with the idolatry of the age. I serve as a volunteer police chaplain, so I spend some of my week in other workplaces. The locations around place. and you know, the regulations for what I can and can't say, what I wear and, and all sorts of things and you just, you just feel the darkness. Many of us have fears and worries and concerns about our own kids' future, let alone how children now face things that we never thought we would face in this generation in, in their growing world, in, by the way, which is more like a growling world. We feel the darkness of decisions made by institutions and people where wrong has become right, right as bigotry and those who ask questions of care and real love are despised and rejected but reforming, hear Jesus' words, this is the dark before the dawn. This should not surprise us. It should not be a shock to us, even in a conservative government, that there is Darkness. Friends, the Bible is written, this Bible is written, right, for you and I to not have to wonder if we are on the right side of history. This Bible is written for the darkness, for the time of the darkness. And if we are being discipled by anything else than the Bible, we are just going to end up responding with darkness, responding with anger, responding with hate. If we're not being discipled and encultured by the Bible, if you are not regularly, daily, reading this because you need it to live, reading it because you need it for your heart, what are you filling your heart with? What are you filling your mind with? If you're not filling it with this, why not? Is it boring? Is it somehow just not... It needs to be in... Other forms? What is is wrong? It's not wrong with the Bible. What is happening in our hearts? We often feel our things. And if we're feeling our things or be consumed by things that are not the Bible, we will be overcome by fear rather than faith in God's promises. Because what is the Bible? It's a whole book of God's promises for the time of the darkness. And if you're not filled with this and hearing God's promises you will be filled with fear. You will be filled with all sorts of concerns and trepidation, anxieties about our world, and you will forget what Jesus says to you. And Jesus here gives us promises, particularly one promise that we need to hold on to in days of sorrow. And it starts, he starts by saying, it surrounds, it encircles, it's all about him in his death and resurrection. You see that first point in the outline, and here's that point. Here's an application point. Your life will be shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus, whether you realise it or not. So if you're, you're listening here and you're looking into Christianity from perhaps feeling like you're on the outside, you're, you're looking, perhaps you're online and you're wondering about Christianity Maybe you're doing some opposition research, so you found us as a church and you're going to research us. We know. We get searches on our website about transgender and gender and all sorts of things. Every time I mention Russia around here, that's another story. And pray for Ukraine. I could call all sorts of names. If you're opposition researching, if you're looking from the outside in, if you are not with Jesus, here is the thing that's a reality now. Your life is shaped by the death and res- resurrection of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Whether you realize it or not, and hopefully in a moment you will, whether you like it or not, and hopefully in a moment you will like it, you can tell where you land in life about where you land, dependent upon how you land about Jesus. And it depends what you rejoice in. Now, I don't mean measuring your happiness. It's not what Jesus is saying here. Have a look what Jesus is saying here. We look in verse... I'll just grab these. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The world will rejoice. You see, Jesus is saying to us here in the room or to you online... Your life will be based upon, shaped by, your attitude towards Jesus and his death and resurrection. Here it is. Here's how you can tell. Are you happy with Jesus? That is, are you rejoicing or happy with Jesus not being in your life? Even this. Are you happy with Jesus just being a little part of your life? Like, not filling your heart, not filling your thoughts, not filling your Uh, and addressing your anxieties and fears and concerns, but actually, are you just happy with Jesus perhaps being your conservative political person? You're kind of on Jesus' side, but you don't really want the Jesus Lordship bit. Are you rejoicing, happy with keeping Jesus at arm's length like that? Are you happy with keeping Jesus' church, who are precious to Jesus, at arm's length? Because Jesus says, when the world Wants Jesus out of their life, what do they do? They rejoice. We are happy he's not in our life. We are happier without Jesus. We are happy with him not being filling my life. Thank you very much. Do you think you'd be happy with Jesus' lordship? Wouldn't have to be something you ever think about? Or do you, like his disciples, long for Jesus? Do you long for Jesus? Because when you look at this world, you're not happy in the world. This world is full of sin and sorrow, and you want someone to do something about it. And you see, often politics over-promises and under-delivers. Often the so-called self-elevated platform saviors of our world, with rhetoric or action, whoever they are, often over-promise and under-deliver. Do you see Jesus? Do you hear Jesus' promise? How you base your life on the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus will show what your life's about. What about you? Where does your life land? How is your life being built on the death and resurrection of Jesus? And Jesus illustrates this point to us who do want to believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And he uses the illustration of a woman giving birth. Have a look in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I've been up close and seen this personally three times, but I've never really experienced it. You see, this vivid reality, this illustration, it works so well, doesn't it? Because you don't have to experience it. You don't have to have even given birth to understand what Jesus means. Even in this moment, notice who Jesus tells this illustration to. Who does he tell it to? It's to men! He tells an illustration to men who will never know this by experience, yet everyone can get what he's saying. You don't have to have seen it up close and personal. You get the experience, don't you? You know this. You could read it in a book. You could read the illustration Jesus gives you. But to have a human being pass through another human being's body is a traumatic experience. And yet, there is joy after sorrow. And notice what Jesus says the joy eclipses the sorrow. You could experience such joy after sorrow, so much that Jesus says the woman no longer remembers the anguish. She no longer remembers the anguish. Jesus, he uses that phrase very intentionally. Her hour has come. Why does he say that? Because he's been saying all through John's gospel, my hour is coming. It's come. And now Jesus turns to those who have shaped their life on his future death and future resurrection. He turns to them, his disciples. He turns to us and he says this in verse 22. So also you, you'll have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. Notice this what Jesus tells his disciples, but also this, this is not you singular, he's not just looking at Peter or John, he's looking at his disciples, the language is plural, he's saying to his church as well, he's saying to reforming, no one will take that joy from you. The historical fact that Jesus did rise again on that Lord's Day, 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul writes this, Jesus' resurrection happened so much in human history to so many people, you could ask them, you could ask Cephas, who's Peter, you could ask their names. You were there, you saw him, yeah, I was there, 500 people at once, he was there. For 40 days, Jesus appears. And Jesus then gives more than just a historical presentation. He says a promise. He gives a promise. You won't just see me again then. You will see me again forever. The theological fact that Jesus rose again, justifies sin as defeating death, gives us victory and future hope, means our hearts will rejoice forever. Friends, what are you going to be doing next week? Have a think right now. Do you know what's on next week? Some of us don't. I mean, I need to look at my calendar. We have to run two calendars now. home, big planner, big picture person, and the kind of little calendar. This is what's happening on the day, the details. I think I know what I'll be doing next week. What are you doing next year? Well, who knows? Hopefully, you're still alive. Hopefully, I am. If you're in Christ, you have a safe assurance about that. What are you going to be doing in a thousand years' time? Oh so far away, but it's guaranteed. As much as next week you think is guaranteed on the calendar, as much as next year you hope is guaranteed on the calendar here, one thousand years time yeah it'll be Aaron's birthday. In one thousand years time, what will you be doing? if you're in Christ worshipping God enjoying him forever so why not start now why not start now why not start enjoying him now rejoicing because we have Christ and Jesus gives a promise no one can take that joy away and they will try they will try But look at the power behind this promise, where it is weighted. The power is in the risen, living, returning Lord and God who has kept every single covenant promise he has made to a church of people that the world has done everything they can, they've thrown everything against us in every generation, every way for us to think that promise won't come true. And yet... Jesus speaks into a sinking world and says this. Notice he says plural to us, the promises for you. But then he goes singular. You notice this, he goes singular. Because just in case, we might be able to identify something or someone. We might say, but hang on a minute, what about Russia? Well, the email's are going to come today, I'll tell you what. What about Russia? What about China? The China Communist Party? What about terrorism? What about some nation out there that we can identify as, as against us? What about a military, a force, a lobby group, a movement, a backlash, a false accusation, a political party, a sexuality agenda? Jesus says, not a single person, not one of those things. I don't know why we give them so much power. I don't know why we fear them so much. He says, not one, look at Jesus' words, not a single one could take the joy of having the risen Jesus in our lives. He's in this room right now by his spirit. You can't take that joy away. You can't take the risen Jesus out of our lives because you can't kill him. You tried, world it didn't work. Great plan. You were happy to have Jesus out of your life. So you did anything you could to have him out of your life. And now that just condemns your life. To want Jesus out of your life is not life. It is condemnation and death forever. It's hell. You don't want Jesus in your life. You are saying, I would rather go to hell than have Jesus. Your only hope is now to see Jesus brings life and so believe in him. That's why this book is written. Jesus Church is a rejoicing church because we have Jesus. Yes, we are a church that's tested. Yes, we are a church that has challenges. We are a church which means we've always got problems. Why? Because we've got people like me. Yes, we're a church that will have anxieties and fears and questions and issues. Yes, but we have the promise of the risen Jesus and our joy will not be taken away. It is a joy, by the way, that can coexist with sorrow. It's not an inane happiness that we have to manufacture. It is a joy that can exist even in tears. And the world has nothing like it because the world does not have the risen Jesus. Which means, friends, we have the privilege of praying in Jesus' name for our joy. Look at verse 23. John 16, 23. In that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Ask. Do we ask? Jesus is teaching us here. How we can respond to the love of our Father in heaven simply through prayer. Now, in a sense, our whole Christian life activity is through prayer. It's in prayer, as we saw about our prayer gathering on, on Sunday nights, our prayer gatherings. We rely upon God and everything in prayer. But Jesus says here, particularly, it's for our joy. And He says we can ask and receive in prayer. Whatever we ask for, this is in shape by, of course, God's revealed will for us in the scriptures. It's not asking for the second house because the first house is not big enough. You know this. Read the Bible. Does Jesus ever teach you to do that? No, he's, ask, he's telling you, you can ask. For whatever is shaped by his revealed will in his word, you can ask and he gives for our joy. And this is why God's word and prayer goes hand in hand. Because you can tell when prayers are not being shaped by his revealed will because we're not reading God's word, we're not praying in line with God's word. To be preserving in prayer is to be reading the Bible in prayer, to seeing the desires of Christ and ask for those desires to be given by the Father. And friends, I want to say a point of application for our hearts. Therefore, it is not trite or a shallow thing to respond to anything in prayer. Sometimes I've pastored people, shepherd people, and I say, well, we're going to pray. And sometimes, sadly, the response is, what? That's all you got? It's pray? Yes. Yes, it is all we've got, because that's what Christ has given us. And it's not all we've got, as in, we're just scraping the bottom of the barrel here of God's great grace to us. It is all we've got, friends. God gives us prayer, access to the Father, any moment. When we see Christians, ourselves, look at prayer as if it's in action, we see a heart problem. Firstly, we haven't listened to Jesus, and secondly, we're not considering talking to Jesus about our biggest problems. The answer to our anger, the answer to our frustrations is not to go in circles and just excite us into a frenzy of further fear and anger. You know what we should do? Pray right now. Rely on God and everything in prayer. The relationship we have with God is amazing, friends. It is awesome. It is wonderful. It's a gift of grace. Any attempt of action in this world, any ministry, any living under the lordship of Jesus without praying, and you might as well say to God, I don't need you. Prayerlessness is an attitude that you say, I don't need God. That's what it is. Your prayerlessness, my prayerlessness is saying, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. Thank you very much. Sometimes we hear it said. It might have even been said here, but we always want to work on our culture of Christ. We pray for the work. We pray for the ministry. No no, 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 Prayer is the ministry. Prayer is the work. Of all the strategic initiatives we could have, we could have a 10-point plan of all the things we're going to do to make a difference in our world today. You don't need a 10-point plan, friends. We don't need to make it up. God gives it to us. It's prayer. The ministry of the church is prayer. Act 6 The apostles say, We will first be devoted to prayer and then the ministry of the word. Devoted to prayer. We have gathered prayer every Sunday here at 5 p.m. It's not fancy, it's not flashy, it won't get you YouTube shares or social media hits because it's not about us, it's about Jesus. We don't broadcast and say, Look what we're doing. You know, I think it's weird when we take pictures of ourselves praying. I think that's a bit strange. Jesus says something about that. Don't pray to be seen. Instead of making it flashy or whatever, just pray. Just come and pray. Because there's something in Acts 4. There's something in the Bible. Notice this in the Bible. Yes, you can pray in triplets. Yes, you can pray in groups. You can pray in private prayer in your home. Jesus says, if you really need to, go into your cupboard. Yes, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with those things. But notice this in the Bible. Notice this in the book of Acts. We are in the book of Acts a couple of years ago. Notice this. When the church faces a world of problems... What do they do? They have a discussion seminar and a meeting and get each other friends here. Ah, the bad people are over there. They're coming over here. We need to organise a lobby group and go and do something. Is that what they do? Do they call upon the emperor to change the legislation? Do they petition people? All good things to do, friends. Is that what they do? Is that where the change happens? It's not. Look at Acts 4. Look at Acts 6. Look at what happens. You know what they do? They call for a church-wide congregational gathering of praying. They ask not for relief from their pain, they ask for boldness to speak into the pain. And what does God do? He answers with boldness. The ground shakes, the world changes, people are saved. Congregation-wide prayer where the whole church is relying upon God together, participatory, petitioning prayer, that changes things. You can tell my dream is for that to happen for us. I think if there's one cultural shape of reforming I'd like to see, I'm praying to see over the next few years, it takes time, it would be that we are a praying congregation. I know not everyone can make it at 5pm, I get it, but there's supper, there's kids, there's... As Ryan said this morning, it's different than the pastoral prayer because we're handing the microphone around, we want people to pray as a church because Jesus promises you can. And he will answer. And he does that for our joy. He does it for our joy. Because he has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world for our life in this temporary world. Before this... And throughout the Bible we see this, Jesus has come for us to believe and have life in his name. The gospel is this, the good news is this, he dies for our sin, rises for our hope to bring us to God forever. That's the gospel, that's the good news. But sometimes we forget the gospel is not just how I got saved Well, that's fine. Yeah, Christians, yeah, the gospel is how I got saved. how I gave my testimony when I became a member of church or something. That's the gospel. The gospel is not just how you got saved. The gospel is the shape of everyday life and application. Everything we meet in life, we need to bring the gospel to bear upon it. Everything. For when you look at the cross, and sometimes, by the way, and Paul has to write this to the church, when you look at the cross, it can seem a bit foolish, can't it? Come on, I'm not going to convince our political leaders with talking about Jesus and the cross. But of course, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians about the cross? That's the power of God. We think the cross and resurrection is just a historical thing, it's how I it got saved, it doesn't speak any more than that, it actually profoundly, theologically, daily is applicable For look at how Jesus couches this last direct word to his disciples. It's not in the language of eternal life. It's how we can live in days of sorrow now. Look at verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world remember that word world he uses, we saw this last week, cosmos, that same word again. Jesus saying, the world of sin and sorrow, you are going to have tribulation in it. And in the world, there's two ways to live. You're either abiding in the world, you're living in the world, you're living, breathing, it's running through your veins. Your worldview is shaped by it. Your attitudes, your responses or your reactions is worldly. It's either you're worldly or you're either of Christ. You're abiding in Christ. There's no in between. And whilst the world thinks we'd be happy without Jesus, Christ and Christianity, it's going to be brought to extinction. It It won't exist in 50 years' time. Jesus says, Jesus says, he's overcome that Jesus is that powerful. He's that powerful because it's by the cross, where they thought they would bring Christianity to extinction at his cross, it's by crucifixion where the power is. Jesus is that powerful. This is the dark before the dawn. The world We live in a world of real tribulation, of real trouble, in the world where you will suffer loss, you will have labels, you'll have lies and slander, but you can take heart And Jesus says, in the face of it, you cannot have fear or anger. What does he say? Have a look. What does he say you can have? Peace. That's where the difference is made. Do you think responding to fear and anger with fear and anger solves things? When was the last time anything changed forever or for the long term with just fear and anger as a response to fear and anger? But imagine responding with peace and kindness and warmth and love. And someone has to say, why are you so weird? Let me tell you about Jesus. Peter writes that we would give a defense, an apology, a reason for the hope we have. Why would we ever have to do that? Because someone has to ask. They're not going to ask about your hope if you're like, yeah, you're a bunch of idiots, you're wrong world, and here's all the reasons you're wrong, and I'm going to cut you down with all my cool words. They're not going to say, oh, what hope have you got? They're not going to ask, because you're not giving them a reason. You don't have hope. But if you could say, you know what, I've heard you, that's very... Helpful to have this discussion. I love you. Let's keep talking. Let's have coffee. Come into my home. Let's do hospitality. The gospel comes with a house key. Get to know us. Let's get to know you. Let's welcome you with love and do that with patience and perseverance and kindness and gentleness over time. And they're going to ask you eventually, why are you like this? Let me tell you about Jesus. Because when I was all angry and bent out of shape by sin, just like you, Jesus come. He's changed my life. I am just like you, perhaps worse But Jesus has given me a peace in a world of tribulation I couldn't get anywhere else. I'm not going to get it from the next YouTube video. I'm not going to get it from any other place but Jesus. And he's got his promises in this book. It's called the Bible. It's really good. You should get into it. Have a read. Because I can hold on to these promises in a world of tribulation and have abiding peace. That would be world-changing. That would make a difference. That would be standing up. And in a world of tribulation, Jesus says, in verse 20, he gives us a promise to hold on to. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, and we do, but the world will rejoice, and it does, but here's his promise. You will be sorrowful, but... And here's what no one else can do. Here's the power of the gospel. But your sorrow will turn into joy. That's not a hopeful aspiration, friends. That's not a maybe or I'm I'm hoping so. Like I'm hoping on the calendar next year I'll still be around. It's a promise, friends. Jesus, by his cross, is that powerful. He can take your sorrow And notice, not just replace it, notice this, but turn it into joy. Our cross-reference passage, Psalm 30, beautiful words. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It comes. Joy is coming, friends. Joy is coming like a whirlwind. Joy is coming like the promise that Jesus gives. It is coming. It is coming for the church. It is coming forever. Now, the world has no patience for that sort of joy. The world has no patience for long-lasting joy. The world wants the joy hit now. Give me the endorphins now. The world will try and find joy in all sorts of places that oversell and under-deliver. The world wants to just avoid the suffering. Perhaps even deny it's there. It's not that bad to try and make sense of life but the world cannot escape it. But even some Christian publishing and platform areas try and get us to avoid suffering and sorrow. They try and get you off the path that Jesus promises. If you walk the path with Christ, the man of sorrows, he promises you, your sorrow will turn into joy. And the path that Jesus walked is that path. He tells his disciples in that room who become his apostles, And they were being sold a lie by the world to avoid it. But they didn't. Those disciples, come apostles, ever since then, the early church, the reformers, the Puritans, every generation. Notice this, we look up to the reformers. Yeah, look, they had reformation, the Puritans. We look up to them. We look up to the early church. Wow, look what they did. Every generation of those generations, every single one had tribulation. Every single one existed in amidst persecution and suffering and sorrow. Look at the Puritans. Look at the reformers. These are people with families who buried more children than they had seen and grew up to adulthood. These are people that lived in homes that didn't have the sanitizing things that we have, of hospitals and aged care facilities. Because if your family member died, they died in the next room. They died in the next room as you heard them gasping for breath. They saw death up close. They had sadness and sorrow. And did they choose to go off that path? No, because Jesus promises them, your sorrow will turn into joy. We need to read them, friends. Get off the contemporary bandwagon that thinks that just because you're young or new or got something fresh You've got the answers. Read the old writings. Read of their times. Read of their family struggles. We need their perspective, their patience, their waiting for Christ's return as we wait for Christ's return. We need to learn as the disciples had to learn. It's just a little while. Our sorrow will turn into joy. And how do we know this is true? Look at the cross. Because that hour is his hour of sorrow, laying down his life for us. Yet the same hour, the moment that is of sorrow, Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and seated at the right hand of God, he's coming, he is coming. Joy is coming, it's coming in the morning. The cross is the dark before the dawn, it's the sacrifice for our sin that follows with the death, defeating and rising to life. And this has application for everyday life. Every time now, this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, next year, maybe if you're still around, in 20 years time, every time you meet sorrow, tribulation, you can have peace because Jesus promises you your sorrow will turn into joy. Let's pray we'll believe him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, when we find ourselves in the pit of failure, when we find ourselves feeling hopeless or helpless, help us to hold on to that promise that our sorrow will turn into joy because of Jesus. When we have frustrations and disappointments, Help us to hold on to this promise, to believe Jesus, that he has secured our life even today because he has secured tomorrow. Father, when we have sins and sorrow, help us to pray and to talk to Jesus about it because we're so thankful that he went into the darkness for our dawn. And we look forward to seeing him again in the morning. Amen.